Amen. We had never heard that song before this morning. That's a new one for us, and we've fallen in love with it already. Let's go to Matthew 5, 7 and Luke 10, 30. Matthew 5, 7 and Luke chapter 10, verse 30. This morning as we continue our study of the Beatitudes. Well, uh, Ruthie found on your website that there was a place for a pastor's blog. So she thought it would be a good idea for me to do a blog. So I started doing a blog this week. I, did, I think I did four about my route to fatherhood. Congratulations to all you daddies and fathers. We're glad that you're here. We have a gift for you as you leave today. We're just thrilled to have you here. And so I wrote. So I hope that you'll check it out this week. I've invited Ruthie to write a blog. I've invited Pastor Mike to write a blog. We just want to, when you have the, the uh, system available, we might as well use it. So we hope that you'll check the blog and read and see what we're trying to write about. We're on the Beatitude today, Blessed are the Merciful. So we're going to read the text, and we're going to read the greatest story from the Bible about mercy. So we're at Matthew chapter 5, verse 7, and Luke chapter 10, verse 30. Ruthie's going to read the scripture for us. Matthew 5, 7. This is the New International Version. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. Now, Jesus was asked, going to Luke, uh, Luke 10, 30 through 37. <clears throat> Jesus was asked, who is my neighbor by a man? Who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied by telling this story. Jesus said a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, which was about two days' wages, and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Jesus said, Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, The one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, Go and do likewise. So the question was, Who is my neighbor? Jesus didn't answer that question. The question he answered was, how can I be neighborly? To whom can I be neighborly? And of course, that's to everybody. Or more about that in a little bit. Blessed are the merciful. Do you understand this progression in the Beatitudes? It's perfect. This is, only God could do this. This is totally perfect. We start with blessed are the poor in spirit. That's people that know they cannot, they don't have the strength to live the Christian life on their own. So because of that, blessed are they that mourn. They are sorry that they just don't have it in them to do it. But because they know they can't do it and they're sorry they can't do it, they call upon God and they become meek. The word meek means an animal that has been domesticated. Blessed are the 
meek, the ones who have yielded themselves to the commands of another. Then, after you've taken care of the negative, poor in spirit, uh, mourn, then meek, now the question is, all right, now what do all do I need to add? Once I've taken care of myself, I've got my appetites under control, what's next? So Jesus said, blessed are they which you hunger and thirst after righteousness, for being right with God. And the traits of that, the first trait of being right with God that he deals with here is mercy. Blessed are the merciful. Now the word merciful in the Greek language means relieving the misery of others. That's what the word means, relieving misery. Now for Jesus to say that happy are the merciful is a contradiction to many. The world generally says the way to be happy is you block out the world and all of its troubles and all of its misery. And you live into yourself and you try to limit the amount of sad situations that you find yourself in. Most people are obsessed with their own feelings and really don't have any time to be concerned about the feelings of others. And they think that that's the way to be happy. But Jesus says, no. If you want to be the happiest that you can be, if you want the best life you can have, the way to find it is to plant yourself in the middle of the afflictions and hurts of others. That goes so much against everything you've been taught since you were a child that we're going to have to unpackage that in this message. The whole process begins with an attitude, with a feeling. First of all, we develop the habit of properly feeling toward other people. Quintilian, the ancient author, said uh, it's a crime to help the poor without sympathy. Jesus said, I mean, Paul said, if I give my body to be burned but I don't have love, then it's just all useless. When you're dealing with someone who is hurting, you have to cross a, a line and hurt with them. You have to bleed in their wounds. You have to let your tears run down their cheeks with their tears. I have an old saying I like to use. Icebergs belong in the North Atlantic, not in a Christian's heart. Jesus comes into us to melt within us the cold, melt it away. So we have to take to heart the misery of others. A Christian has to choose, and you do have to choose, you must make a conscious choice to feel the pain that others feel. Now let me tell you why this is so personal to me. I was raised by two of the most wonderful parents any human being ever had. And they taught me the ways of the Lord, and uh, they blessed me. My mother married when she was barely 15. She was just barely past 14. She got married when she was 15. A year and two months later, she had my sister, who was deaf, had me when she was 18. So mother basically was a child, beginning the journey through a very difficult life. And so as a child, now she's faced with this problem of having hurt and pain in her family in her own child. Mother decided that the way she would deal with pain was to detach. She would go to a certain point, she could feel a little bit of pain, just enough, but then she had this uncanny ability to detach. Unfortunately, she taught it to her son, to me. One of the greatest struggles of my life has been to get away from what my mother taught me to do, to detach. I can't go to sad movies, can't read sad books. 
I'm the only man in the world whose children goes, they go to Disney movies to make sure it's okay for their father to go to Disney movies. I, I just can't go there. I, I can't go there. And yet that's exactly what Jesus is saying to me. He's saying, John, if you're going to please me, you've got to get past that. You must learn to hurt. You must be there. You must care for people. You, when they hurt, you must hurt. Now, a word of caution before we even go any farther. If you are going to help people, if you're going to seek to uh, care for them and hurt with them, you better learn how to cast your burdens upon the Lord. Now, there are a lot of stories in the Bible. Uh, every story in the Bible is there for a reason. Why? You have to ask, why is that story in there? And there are scores and scores of stories that didn't get in there. Well, one of the stories that's kind of amazing is where Jesus is walking through the crowd, and the woman touches the hem of his garment, and when she touches him, she's immediately healed. And Jesus stops. He says, who touched me? They said, well, everybody's touched you. He said, no, 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 virtue has gone out of me, the old King James word, power. Power has gone out of me. Now, why did he put that story in the Bible? Why is that one that important that it would be recorded? There's only one logical explanation. It was Jesus' way of letting us know that every time we minister, when we serve, when we help, life essence comes out of us. When you serve others, you hurt. You lose something. That's why you have burnout. That's why many people who minister and serve, missionaries, they just crash and burn. Because they forget that every time you touch, every time you help, every time you cry, you lose something. And so before we even go any farther in this sermon, let me make sure that you understand, you better have a good relationship with the Lord where you are casting your burdens on Him. Where you're able to have the replenishing of what's being depleted. You must have this flow for this to work. So, what we have to do is we have to be willing to live in their hurt. This is what Jesus did. You've heard me say this, I'm going to say it until I die. One of the greatest sentences in the history of the English language is when the Bible says that Jesus, who is God, when He came into our flesh, He emptied Himself. It's one of the most important phrases in the history of humanity, Jesus emptied Himself. Why is it so important? Because it proves that Jesus came to hurt like we hurt. See, if He didn't empty Himself, He couldn't have hurt like us. We say, well, He's just God. Yeah, He lived a perfect life, but He's God. No, you missed the whole point. The whole point of Him emptying Himself is so that He might come and when he looked through our eyes, he saw what we saw. So that when he felt the pain, he really felt the pain. He knew what we were going through. He, cho he chose not to be remote. And he's not detached. He's not isolated. He walked among the crowds. When I, when I was a young preacher, Dr. Falwell would say to us young preachers, walk slow among the people. That has stuck with me through the years. That's one reason I would stand at the door before and after church. That and my daddy. My daddy told me the same thing. You stand out among the people. You walk with them. You see the tear in their eye. You feel the anticipation. and you, you, You're sharing life with them. That's what Jesus taught us to do. He walked among the crowds. And at any moment, no matter what he was doing, he could hear somebody yell, Lord, Lord, have mercy on me. And the Greek would say, Lord, relieve my misery. My misery. I'm miserable. Help me. And just like that. This one who is totally enraptured 
And the crowd turns. And he feels the hurt and the pain. And that's where it always started with Jesus. The feeling always came first. Your attitude has to be where it begins. Before he fed the crowd, the Bible says he had compassion on the multitude. Before he raised Lazarus from the dead, the Bible is very careful to tell us Jesus wept. Before he healed the blind man, the Bible says he was moved with compassion. So you must begin with a mindset that says, I'm going to hurt. I'm going to care. I'm going to walk in this world. See, too many Christians, they, they do their, their Christianity by proxy. They're not out there in the homeless shelter for the poor. They just send their money. They're not over here in the homeless shelter for the teenagers. If they hung out with those teenagers, they wouldn't like them. And they couldn't stand the pain that they would hear about it and see in their lives. So, so we just do it by proxy. We give our money and let other people take care of it. That's the total opposite of what Jesus is saying here. We must be out there. We must incarnate ourselves among the hurts of humanity. Now, if we're going to do that, we're going to do that, we're going to have to learn what, what, what is to push us and what is going to make us do that. All of us in this room, we know that we're supposed to do deeds of kindness and deeds of mercy, every one of us. The problem is we begin to think, well, we can do it from duty. You know, we just know that we're guilty if we don't. And so we begin to do things like we do from a distance. Not because we really care. Not because we hurt. But just because we know we're supposed to do it. And that's totally the opposite of what Jesus teaches us as to how we're supposed to minister to hurting people in the world in which we live. I, I'm, I'm going to use as an illustration a food that we all like. Chocolate. How many of you like chocolate? If you don't like chocolate, you came from a different planet. You, you need to check your spirituality if you don't like chocolate. When I had my heart attacks... And I was beginning to change my diet. The doctor encouraged me. And he said, don't worry, your, your taste buds will change. It's true. Chocolate tastes better than it has ever tasted. It, my taste buds went the wrong way. And I'm kind of messed up. All right. But now listen. The chocolate that we all love is impossible unless it starts bitter. When you first clip chocolate, it's extremely bitter. You can barely eat it. To get the chocolate that you enjoy, you have to take the bitter, put it into a cauldron and put other things with it, and then comes out the wonderful product that you want. That's what Jesus is saying right here. He's saying, now here's what you do. Sure, it's bitter. It's hard to actually go out there and actually walk in a homeless shelter, actually help women who are in human trafficking, as Ruthie tries to do sometimes, actually out there with people, with sinners. Yes, it's bitter and it's painful. But when you take the bitterness, you take it deep into yourself, and somewhere in there, there's a spot, there's a cauldron, where the Lord adds Himself and other things, and out of it comes great joy. But without the bitterness... God cannot make the great joy. 
If you're not willing to take the hurt and the pain and the suffering and the sadness, you do that out of duty. You do it from guilt. You can never be a cheerful giver in that context. A Christian has to make the choice to feel pain. And the classic story, of course, is the Good Samaritan, which Ruthie read to us just a minute ago. Here's a man. He's off in the ditch over here. And, and what did the Good Samaritan do? If I were to ask you, I promise you, every one of you in this room, I would dare say that not five of you would get the answer to this question right. What did he do first? I dare say not five of you would get it right. What do you remember about the story? He dressed wounds. He transported the body. He gave two days of his pay to take care of the man. That is not what came first. The Bible is very clear. Jesus was very clear. First... Jesus says, he felt compassion. Isn't it interesting to notice that the priest and the Levite went to the other side of the road? You know, the priest is the big dog at the temple. The Levite, he does the grunt work. So you have these two religious people going up to the temple. Isn't it interesting? They went to the total opposite side of the road. Now, why did they do that? Why did they go over there? Because they knew if they looked, they might begin to feel. So therefore, rather than have compassion, rather than have a change in their attitude, they decide they'd go ahead and do what they've always done, do religious things which require no feeling. And our churches are full of people like that. All kinds of jobs inside the church. Do all kinds of things inside these walls. Doing religious things. Do you think do you think for one second that a homeless man or a lady in human trafficking or a homeless teenager, do you think for one second that they care one whit about anything that happens in here? Of course they don't care. Because this is religion without feeling. You can do church things and be counted really spiritual. You can, you can do these types of official things, and you can be considered really religious. But people like that, who will give themselves doing religious things without feeling, they do only the very minimum required to help the hurting, and then they usually send it by money. They send it by proxy. 300 years ago, great pastor Thomas Watson said it. He got it right. The reproach of Christianity, you ready for this? The reproach of Christianity is devout misers. Religious people who will not give their heart, who will not take the hurt, who will not assume the position of living in other people's pain. We say, okay, Pastor, all right, I'll, I'll give you that. How do I know if I have the right attitude? You say it begins with feeling and attitude. How do I know if I have the right attitude? That's, that's the easiest question to answer of the day. Thank you for asking it. How do I know if I have it? It's causing you to do things. It's causing you to move your hand. It's causing you to go out and find places where you can minister out in the community, where people are miserable, where there's a lot of sadness. You know that you have the right feeling if you go out there and do something about it. You see, there, there are some of you in the room, you're very sentimental people. There are some of you that can watch a 30-second commercial and be crying by the end of the commercial. 
just, oh, get a kid on there, something with the right music, and 30 seconds a tear can be in your eye, and, so, and you just feel the danger of that is people let that fulfill the commitment to show mercy. They say, oh, I'm such a caring person. You're not a caring person. You're not a caring person until the feeling causes the doing. You cannot let your, your sadness and your sentimentality become the sole essence of who you are and what you are. You, you must do. That's the only way you can know if you have proper mercy. If you have the proper spirit, is it is causing you to do things. You must learn to carry your own sunshine with you. Everywhere you go, you seek bird disease. You try to give people a touch. A hello, a smile, a handshake, a hug, if appropriate. I've watched this for four to seven years now, my wife. Ruthie has as the goal of her life, every day, without missing a day, every day to somehow significantly show mercy to someone. It might be someone at the checkout counter. It might be someone she sees in the parking lot. It might be somebody she sees sitting on a bench. She did it all the way through Washington, D.C. She sees people sitting on a bench. She goes sit down and engage in a conversation. This is her. She carries her oasis with her. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. You go out into a hurting world. You go out among people who are just dying. They're in so much pain they can't stand it. And you go and you carry your blessing with you. You are the blessing. You are the oasis where they find life and sustenance. All right, then. Once you do it, then what's the result? Blessed are the merciful. Why? They shall obtain mercy. Now, there may not be one phrase in the Bible that's more often misinterpreted than this. I promise you that 90% of you in the room right now, when you say, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy, your first thought was, you be kind to people, they'll be kind to you. Er, wrong. No. You don't show mercy to people and expect them to show mercy back. That does not happen as much as it does happen. Jim Elliott goes down to the Alka Indians to share Christ with them. What do they do? They martyr him. Bill Wallace, the great Southern Baptist missionary, he goes to China. He gives his life to them. Literally, he gives his life to them. And how do they reward him? They put him in a jail and they beat him to death. Jesus, who showed more mercy than anyone, he was rejected, betrayed, beaten, and crucified. The mercy that we receive is not mercy from other people. The mercy is from God. Always remember the Beatitudes are promises of God's gifts to us. So as we show mercy, what we are doing, we are extending God. We are as if we are God. He, he's moving through our hands. He's moving through our heart, through our legs. So as we reach out and show mercy, for just a moment, it's almost as if God is in our debt. Because we are representing Him. We are doing His work. And for just an instant, almost, it's like all of a sudden, we're doing something. And God, hey, whoo, we're down here doing something for you. And so God, who will never be in your debt, never for one second, Created the world in such a way that when you extend your hand and your heart and your life to touch and show mercy, immediately a cloud of mercy comes back on you. It's like when you go into a place and you hit your hand on the couch and the dust will come up. That's the way it is with showing mercy. God has created the world in such a way that when you go into a hurting situation, people who are in a lot of pain, when you touch them, 
a cloud of mercy envelops you. It engulfs you. It comes to you. Now, obviously, you need it. Everybody needs mercy. The very, very fact that the merciful receive mercy proves that they, too, have miseries of their own. Every human heart has its hurts and its pains. And as we step outside ourselves to help the misery of someone else, the relief comes back into us. It recoils toward us. Wonderful verse, Proverbs eleven seventeen. The merciful man does good to his own soul. The NIV translates it, the kind man benefits himself. Now, a final thought, we'll be done. There are maybe five or six uh, guiding truths that guide me my whole life. And, uh, and someday I thought I'd write a little book about the five or six, what I think are the most important things I've preached and taught through the years. I've already shared this one with you, but I'm going to share it with you again. When it comes to mercy, and as you give something, I want to remind you that helping someone else will give you more happiness than anything you ever do for yourself. The old great preacher Alexander McLaren said, life of selfishness is hell. I wouldn't necessarily go that far. But I do know that God, when he talked to the covetous rich man, he said, thou fool. Here's what I would remind you. I would remind you that what you give away, whether it's money, mercy, grace, tears, whatever, that what you give away it's what you will enjoy the most in life. I submit to you that what you keep, not what you give away, is what causes you grief. I would dare say that no one in the room laid awake last night worried about the money they've given to the church in the past. I would dare say that not one of you in this room gets up and is worried about the time that you helped a poor person or you helped someone out on the street. You went to a homeless shelter. I would dare say not one of you laid awake last night worried about something you gave away, something you did for others. I submit to you that what worries us is what we have kept. You will lose sleep tonight over the house that you own that your payments are too high. Over your car that is wearing out before it's paid for. For your clothes. That are now out of style and no longer fit. That's what Jesus was trying to teach us. He was saying the best life is never found in what you keep. Now should you keep? Sure. As I told you, Ruthie and I lived 80%, 10%, 10% our lives. Lived on 80%, gave at least 10% to the Lord's work, and saved 10% toward retirement. 80, 10, 10. So yes, you should save for yourself. You should take care of yourself. But... 10% is not that much for yourself. And so you live life. You've got to eat. You've got to live. You've got to work close. But Jesus is saying, in the midst of this getting, always remember that if you really want to obtain mercy, if you really want joy, if you really want fullness, you're going to find it in somebody else's pain, right in the middle of their hurt. Not by isolating yourself. Now, by putting yourself away, John, 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 are you hearing what you're saying? John, are you hearing yourself? 
not by detaching. Because it hurts so bad. My master's screaming in my ear, John, listen to me. I love you. I want the best life for you. And the best life, the good life, is for you to get past your detachment, to go out where people are hurting, find the suffering, and touch them. And in the touching, mercy will recoil on you. I think that's enough for one day. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes.